They say everyone's born a hero, but if you let it, life will push you over the line until you're the villain. Problem is, you don't always know when you've crossed that line. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today, we talk about Jessica Jones on Genreless. Hey everybody, welcome back to the new episode that may or may not drop after Daredevil, depending on scheduling. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I, I want to start off by saying that I implicitly love this show and I love the character of Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. So, all of my opinions are going to be utterly biased from this point on, but I wanted to get that up front. So, when I give it nothing but praise... And you say, why is it Chris complaining how Chris likes to do? That is why. <laughs> well, good, because I, I, I have some negative thoughts. So I can, balance, I can provide that balance for you. <laughs> so I, I think we're going to do a reverse of Daredevil from last week, basically. Yes. Yes, basically, yeah. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that I suggested to Eddie to help us with this, because since we're in a, a brand new season and as the show continues to evolve, as we continue to, forgive the pun, mutate. Um <laughs> No, we can't talk about mutants. mutants are, we can't talk about mutants in the MCU yet. <laughs> You're right. I think we talk about Inhumans and Inhumans. Oh, then God. eventually Eternals. <laughs> um, given that we're in the genre, we decided to do sort of a, a multiverse touchstone because mm-hmm. a lot of the shows are taking heroes and are changing them, and we wanted to touch a little bit on their main variants. So for mm-hmm. this edition, we're going to touch briefly on the six one six versions of the characters. And if we do a DC run, it would be like the main DC continuity. Although, I've got a lot of thoughts about Elseworlds for D&D. Just saying. Okay. All right. But to give you a quick breakdown of the 616 Jessica Jones. uh, Superpowers. She's super strong. She's probably going to lift about two to five tons. She has sort of an enhanced endurance flight. And her primary superpower is her detective skills. I know it's not a superpower, but in the MCU, there are so few detectives that it is astounding. And one of the powers that they don't demonstrate a lot is that the character in the Jewel incarnation had energy blast, which I don't think we've seen a lot of energy blast, even in the current incarnation of the character. I would even go as far as to say very few characters have energy blast in the MCU and extended universe, period. Yeah. But, but it's interesting you point that out about detective skills because I was just thinking about that. The DC has the opposite problem. Like DC is just chock full of detectives. There's so many detectives. There's Batman, the entire Bat family. There's the question. There's Elongated Man. The there's best so many detectives. detective. Elongated Man? Absolutely. No, no. The question. <laughs> no, Elongated Man. No, yes. And specifically, um, the, 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 the current version of the question is the best. Um, Do since you made your joke about the elongated man, then I have to say, I think Plastic Man is a better detective. How's that? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> pistols at dawn, my friend. <laughs> um, but you're right. Uh, outside of uh, Jamie Madrox, and even then, that was kind of shoehorned in. There really aren't many people who are known to be detectives in uh, Marvel comic continuity. When we say six on six, we mean Marvel continuity. Because if you think about it, most of the heroes either. Like, for instance, Spider-Man, he's trying to find someone, spends all night swinging around the city. Yep. Daredevil goes and beats up someone to hopefully for them to tell him where someone is. Mm-hmm. So it's like an ongoing 
ongoing trend. Like Misty Knight would be a detective that sort of helps someone do other things. Mm -hmm. And the superheroes just kind of stumble on to villains. It's easy to find a villain once they've done something. Like Doc Ock breaks into a bank. Police report. Doc Ock, what are we going to do? (laughs) Spider-Man swings in to save the day. Right. Yes. And is this is a developing part? I'm going to take a little bit about the history of Jessica Jones because I love the character. It's a, okay. it's a thing. Um, the character was created by Mike Michael Bendis, who had a love for 70s superhero characters, which is one of the reasons Luke Cage came back into prominence, which I am super excited for. Mm-hmm. And that's why Luke Cage eventually leads, becomes an Avenger, leads the Avengers, uh, marries Jessica Jones. The thing for Jessica Jones is originally Bendis wanted to use Jessica Drew, another 70s character. But Marvel at the time was getting ready to do a big thing that I will not give spoilers for because it's an upcoming TV series. And Jessica Jones was crucial to that series. And so they said, no, you cannot use Jessica Jones. And Bidis says, all right, I want to use a character because she had the best hair. It's in an interview, he wanted Jessica Jones because he loved her hair. Mm-hmm. And he says, all right, I'll make my own character, Jessica Jones, instead of Jessica Drew. And right. hence, you get Jessica Jones. And he interweaves her to the history of the comics where she's frequently in a coma is sort of one of the reoccurring themes of the character Um, because she gets her superpowers from a car accident that kills her parents and brother and she's in a coma and -hmm. she gets splashed with like some very Daredevil-esque fluid that gives her superpowers. (laughs) Uh, Then she starts a very brief superhero career where she encounters a purple man who becomes like her biggest villain for the mm-hmm. entire series of alias alias is a is it sort of in the max comic line it was written for adults it's a, like darker in tone mm-hmm. so that was one of the reasons that he got to do some of the stuff he got to do with the purple man who beforehand the purple man is primarily a daredevil villain that was more of a joke because one of the most memorable scenes of the purple man first showed up is that he controlled a bunch of weightlifters to be bodyguards who then beat up daredevil wow. comics <clears throat> oh boy uh and so instead he turns the purple man into like just an evil character yeah. who uses his power to control people. For instance, say like stop breathing in a restaurant full of people and they all die. Mm-hmm. Like that is the extent of his power and how evil he shows him to be. And Jessica Jones shows up as jewel at the time to mm-hmm. confront the purple man. He instantly controls of her, has her attack the police and then keeps her more or less as his psychological hostage, ah, psychological hostage mm-hmm. for about, eight months and has her do all sorts of various evil things for him. One of the things that I wanted, the reason I want to do this and point out is that the show is going to tell you that in, in one of the things that he physically assaults her amongst other things yeah. in the comic, he does not do that. Right. In fact, in the comic, he makes an explicit point not to do that. And it's all right. psychological and a power control for him of her. Mm-hmm. And instead he has her stand in a corner while he, sexually and physically assaults other women and other people and have her say that she's begging him to do that to her and he refuses to. So it's like that deep level of trauma that he's inflicting. And eventually he tries to send her off to go kill Daredevil because Daredevil got some big presses. Go kill Daredevil, any hero you encounter along the way. And she right. flies off. And on the way there, she sees a ret. And the further she gets away, the purple man's power sort of decreases on her. But she's been with him for eight months. So it's like mm-hmm. seeped into like every pore of her being. And as it slowly works its way off, she sees a superhero in red. She's going to attack them. And it turns out it's a Scarlet Witch. And the vision proceeds to beat her back into a coma, protecting the Scarlet Witch, like savagely beating her, mm-hmm. putting her in a coma for a number of months. 
And during that point in time, her best friend, who is Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Miss Marvel, mm-hmm. comes in and they have Jean Grey come. And Jean sort of like helps bring her out of her coma, but also installs mental blocks so the Purple Man's power doesn't affect her. Mm. And through the course of all of that, she'll eventually go back and confront the Purple Man. She meets Luke and she tells Luke her Luke is first person. She tells her actual full story, too. And so they sort of have a bond from that. And then during the course of the series, she, I'm just ruining Alias. So if you want to read it, yeah. uh, you can still read it, but you get the high points here. Right. At the end of it, because of different circumstances, they decide to try to start a new chapter of their lives together. And they go off into the sort of the sunset. Right. And I mean, I know from this point on, then their story kind of gets picked up in uh, Bendis' new Avengers run. And that's kind of where their, their story mm-hmm. continues from that point. Which goes back to Bendis being great because he also created the best Spider-Man, in my opinion, Miles mm-hmm. Morales. Absolutely. 100% agree. I said it if you're Peter Parker or Ben Riley fans. <laughs> are there Ben Riley fans? That seems weird. Well, yeah, there, there are. There was a big outcry for him to come out for a while. Oh, weird. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the short synopsis of the 616. This is a new bit that we're trying. If you like it, let us know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, you can still let us know. I may not give you a thumbs up on Twitter, but I will acknowledge (laughs) that you've told me that and it may factor that into future things. Right. Exactly. And I caught, I think, Eddie off guard with a lot of it because we have our our notes documents that Eddie, what if we do this thing? (laughs) And he's like, oh, another Chris idea. (laughs) Yes. And uh, my my reaction was I'm mad because I didn't think of it at first, honestly. Um, (laughs) And and the first time I read it, I misread it because I thought it was the actual... 84 RPG stats. I'm like, Jessica Jones didn't have stats in the 84 RPG. And then I reread it. And it's like, oh no, it's the Marvel handbook breakdown. You know, um, I can make those stats right now on air, right? I, I know you could, and we're not going to. Because <laughs> we have three episodes <laughs> to talk about. Um, uh, but to be fair, I also didn't know any of that context. I, 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 My exposure to Jessica Jones is almost entirely through this show and the new Avengers run, where frankly, she's not used very well in that run. Um, mm-hmm. her role is basically Luke Cage's wife and mother to his child. And that's basically it. So, um, I'm, it's really cool to hear that that, that happens. And that's, that's made me more excited to talk about the show. One of the things I would like them to do, for instance, if people have, are familiar with the fantastic four, the fantastic four have another daughter after Franklin and yes. through the course of that, their daughter ages, like she does mm-hmm. age jumps until she becomes a character. Unfortunately, they have not done the same with Daniela, who is Jessica and Luke's daughter, yeah. which would have helped all the characters progress and change. Instead, right. they kept the daughter. I think during the course of the time, the two daughters were at the same age, but now the Fantastic Four daughter is around 10. Uh, actually, um, very recently, because uh, I follow Fantastic Four, I, read, I, I actually I have the latest issue right here. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I actually I follow this. Um, and uh, uh, both of the, the Richards kids have actually aged up five years because they went off in space and then blah, 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 time shenanigans came back five years older um, because they're more interesting as teenagers now. And Valeria Richards is amazing. I completely agree. Yeah. And unfortunately, they haven't done that with Danielle. I think Danielle is maybe 10 months old now. <laughs> Jeez. Marvel time. So it, it's hard to have the characters change and progress and become more active if you don't let them do certain things. Right. <laughs> Now, after that very long-winded explanation, I think that's the most that everyone, anyone's ever heard me prattle on at once. Um, I'm excited. Do you have any other thoughts bef- before we get to the show? Um, 
uh, one thing I, I've been enjoying about doing this podcast is going back and watching shows because sometimes uh, shows are kind of what I remember them to be. And I go back and say, yep, that's pretty much the show I remember. Um, but a lot of times I realize what my memory of the show is and what the show actually is are different. And this is one where uh, I had a very strong impression of, of, of particularly the cinematography and staging, which I'll go into with episode one. Um, and that just didn't bear out through the other episodes. So I thought the whole season was like, it turns out only the first couple of episodes were actually like. Um, so it's, I, I, I had some ideas of what I was going to talk about. And then I actually watched the show and it's like, oh, that's actually not what I thought happened. Um, but then other parts really did pan out the way I thought they did. And so it's, it's going to be cool to talk about those, those pieces. Awesome. All right. Let's get started. Jessica Jones, an alcoholic private investigator gifted with super strength, delivers a subpoena to a strip club owner for lawyer Jerry Hogarth, who's having an affair with her assistant, Pam exposing her abilities to him in the process. While not working, Jessica spies on Luke Cage, a bar owner who she sees looking who sees her looking into his bar and offer her offers her free alcohol as a ladies' night promotion, leading to the pair having sex. I think it's the first time we just said sex blatantly on the air. Sex. And I feel good about it. Boning. She leaves upset after seeing a photo of a woman in his bedroom. Jones is approached by the slotsman, Slotmans after their daughter, Hope, disappears. Jones discovers that Hope is with Kilgrave, a man with mind control abilities who once controlled Jones. And it's left her with PSTD. Ah, PTSD. And who she believes and she believes was dead. Jones wants to flee, but is convinced by her friend and foster sister, Trish Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, Hellcat. to help Hope. Jones finds Hope, but Kilgrave's hold over is still over her and forces Hope to kill her parents as he knew that Jessica would find him. Mm -hmm. Find her. And this is kind of what I was talking about in terms of the visuals because one of the things I loved about this episode, and again, in my memory, it went through the whole season, but it's not true, is um, whenever Kilgrave is using his abilities, uh, uh, the color purple starts to come into the, on the screen. Um, and so his purple man thing is never actually called that, but they use the color purple to indicate his power use. And so in this first episode, um, when he's kind of whispering off screen, the, the color changes to purple. Um, whenever Jessica's remembering uh, him, purple light comes into the scene. Uh, but the big one, the one that I really loved is um, when Hope, when you see Hope, their parents, there's always kind of a shoulders up shot. And then near the end, when she's in the elevator and the elevator's closing, she reaches her hand into a bag and the bag is purple checked. <laughs> and it's the first time you see the bag. And it's like, oh, the bag's purple. And then she pulls the gun out. Um, and throughout the season, there are moments of that. Um, we skipped over some episodes where, like, for example, um, Kilgrave's actually wearing a purple suit. Um, and uh, when he starts controlling people, they start to incorporate purple color into their wardrobe. Um, so there are more references to it, but it's not as consistent throughout the whole season as I remembered it being, but it was a great moment of because showing mind control is so hard on TV. It's yeah. something easier to do in comics. It's hard to do in television without the acting seeming weird. And so using color was actually a really clever way of doing that. I thought. And so one of the things that I didn't mention is that in the 616 main continuity, the purple man is literally purple. Hence right. the name purple man. Subtle. 
he's super subtle. Um, I love the first episode. I love the voiceover because one of the things is as a huge noir fan, voiceover for the old movies is almost like a common staple. Yep. And I know that a lot of people aren't fan of voiceovers. And I've even, when I heard some of the reviews initially for the show, they're like, why are they doing a voiceover? A voiceover is so dated. Mm. One of the things is if you're trying to invoke a genre in a new medium, you need to go back to the original touchstones to help reinforce what that is. Right. And for noir, part of that is the voiceover. It's also like the damaged characters trying to do good regardless of everything else and the bad decisions they'll make trying to do what they think is the greater good. One thing that I think a lot of people missed with that is like, you're absolutely right. It is a nod to a set of tropes that people can recognize what kind of show they're going to watch. But also it is about a woman who is not entirely sure what reality is because of her experiences. I mean, this, let's be blunt. This is an entire season about gaslighting, right? Um, this is someone who can literally gaslight people in a very literal way. Uh, and that, PTSD that comes from, that trauma comes from gaslighting, causes you to question reality. And so by having an interior monologue, it's another way of showcasing Jessica's trying to reinforce what's really going on in her head. And sometimes we as the audience aren't entirely sure how much of what we're getting is true. Over time, we start; to, it becomes clearer. But at this early stage, there's lots of stuff that Jessica's absolutely acting on and informs her character that at this episode, we don't know the context for. Over time, we learn it, but she the, the, the internal narration helps to understand there's a lot of stuff going on in her head, and her psychological state is a key part of that. And so the voiceover is actually doing double duty in a very clever way, and I think a lot of people kind of just went, oh, it's so dated, oh, it's noir, and it's like, no, yes, but there's <laughs> there are other reasons why this is actually a good <laughs> choice from a structural standpoint. Now, I and, will say um, uh, one thing that adds criticism is, uh, just like Daredevil, uh, the first black character we see is a criminal. <laughs> I agree, but I like the twist that they put on that, though. Yes. Which we unfortunately don't touch on in the three episodes that were chosen. But since I, I'm going to, it's part of a description later anyway, you find out that Malcolm was actually sort of a grad student that had all these other things he was going to be do that he was going to do. But the purple man used his power to turn Malcolm into a drug addict to spy on Jessica. Right. It, it is subverted, which I did appreciate. So much like you, when I first saw it, I was like, Oh, look at these. Mother <laughs> and it was nice to see that there was an actual change to it. Now, Malcolm's character throughout the show develops and as we're not talking about later seasons, his development is interesting to watch the choices they have the character make. Right. Some of them are impacted by what happens this season and then the rest of them are not. Right. And that is as much as I'll say and people can go watch later seasons that I would suggest you do, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. And I liked how they sort of showed Jessica's alcoholism through the show. It wasn't, it was a primary ongoing reoccurring thing and it's her coping mechanism, but how she's always, her first instinct is to go for like the bottle and to do these other things. And it shows that she is a, a high functioning alcoholic. Right. With high, doing a lot of work there, honestly. Um, it was a really good example because uh, uh, I thought I was in the show before, but um, I, I came from a family of alcoholics. So how alcohol and addiction is portrayed on TV is something I'm always interested in. Uh, and this worked well for me because it very much 
is implied, and I think later in season outreach stated that she's basically self-medicating here. She has mm-hmm. PTSD, and so she's using the alcohol as a way of, of coping with her PTSD, um, which is a common method of coping, is substance abuse. Uh, um, Malcolm's journey is kind of mirroring Jessica's in that way to a certain degree. Uh, and um, the show is not shy about showing the fact that Jessica's alcoholism makes her life harder for her. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes she will choose her addiction over common sense. Like the scene with Luke Cage. Uh, uh, she basically comes in and starts talking to the person she's supposed to be paying, you know, staying away from because he offers her free drinks. And that's the, that's the addiction talking. It's okay. Well, that, I like free drinks. Um <laughs> And, uh, but again, this is a case where a noir trope is doing double duty because the hard drinking detective is very much a trope, but now the hard drinking has a purpose. So one of the things that I think is very clever about this show is it's setting up, you know, it, 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 it starts off like, okay, it's modern day and it's a woman as opposed to a man, but otherwise this is basically every fifties detective, American detective uh, a trope thrown into a pot, but then each starts to slowly unpack all of them and realize, oh no, this is here for a reason. This is here for a reason. This is here for a reason. And it all stems back to Kilgrave. So, I mean, it's, I think it's really well done. Since we had a larger opening, I'm curious, is there anything else that you would really like to touch on for the show before I go into some of my closing thoughts on it for the first episode? Uh, no, go ahead for the closing thoughts because most of my thoughts are now okay. going to be in Touch Up Perverts, which is a great title. So the, it was, also a great quick display of how it introduced her supporting cast of uh, Jerry Hogarth, mm. who is actually in, wow, I realized my closing thoughts would be a little bit longer than I thought. Uh, Jerry Hogarth is actually a character from Iron Fist and they sort of did a gender swap for the character. Right. And that is like her main support throughout the show for how she provides jobs and everything else. And then the foster sister of Trish Walker who in the comics is actually Hellcat and Trish Walker replaces Carol Danvers in her life because Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel is Jessica's best friend that helps her. And Carol Danvers in the comics is actually a recovering alcoholic who has many mm. bouts of falling off of the recovery train and going back into full alcoholism. And that's one of the oh. reasons that you see Trish deals with Jessica regardless of what happens. Carol did that in the comics. And part of that is because Carol has gone through that journey herself. Right. Um, a quick digression, but uh, one of the things I did like as a note is um, uh, Trish Walker was actually uh, one of the romance comics that Marvel put together before she was incorporated into 616, and her her role was as a model. So it was nice to have her childhood model history in this mirror her actual comic origin in a way that they really didn't need to do. Um, I'm glad that they actually brought that in. It was like, it was like this was a comic knowledge that like very few people are going to catch, very few people are going to care about. But I was like, I, I, I see you. I respect and appreciate your deep, deep, deep cuts here. <laughs> uh, and so Hope is the last person I want to touch on for this episode as mm-hmm. this is like Hope's story. It was interesting to see Hope, who is also in The Boys. Yes, as Starlight. As Starlight. And you'll also see there's another boys alum in a show also. Mm-hmm. And so Hope's journey is, is an interesting one is that you can tell that she doesn't want to do the things, but she's doing them anyway because Kilgrave has told her to do it. And you get a sense that of how smart and tactical Kilgrave is, is he's built in like all these little traps for Jessica to fall into throughout the course of the show. Mm-hmm. And, the, and one of the first examples is Hope killing her parents in the elevator. Yeah. All right. 
We're going to move on to Season 1, Episode 7, a.k.a. Top Shelf Perverts. A drunk Jones, having been asked by Hogarth to convince Wendy, who is Hogarth's wife, to sign divorce papers, accosts Wendy in a subway and almost kills her. Wendy refuses to sign the papers. Marcus, who was the neighbor that originally spoke of beforehand, who was mind mm-hmm. controlled by Kilgrave, helps Jessica get into her apartment where they find Ruben's body. Ruben is a neighbor that had a crush on Jessica, mm-hmm. and is also his sister is also no, I don't know if it's sister or girlfriend. They're a very weird dynamic relationship. Yes, uh, his his sister wife is what we'll say <laughs> is the other person from the boys. And knowingly blaming Kilgrave, Jones devises a desperate plan to get herself in prison in the supermax. So when Kilgrave inevitably comes for her, his abilities will be caught on camera. She decapitates Ruben's body. Mm-hmm. Walker and Will Simpson, uh, Simpson's a cop with a mysterious background, have their own plan with them following Kilgrave's security detail, though Walker doesn't reveal, ah, though Simpson doesn't reveal to Walker that he's found out that Kilgrave has bought the Jones's old house. Mm-hmm. Marcus disposes of Ruben's body while Jessica enacts her plan and takes his ever head to the police station and puts it on the desk and tries to get herself arrested. Mm-hmm. But Kilgrave shows up, mind controls the entire station to put their guns to their heads and assume, tell everyone this is just a joke and you'll all laugh. And if not, they'll all kill themselves. And so Jessica leaves, the police all laugh, and at the end of the episode, you have Kilgrave and Jessica walking into Jessica's old house together voluntarily, witnessed by Simpson. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things. First off, real quick. Um, do you know who Simpson is in 616? Nuke! <laughs> yes. Again, who the fuck ever cared about seeing Nuke in on TV? But I'm like, a deep cut. I, like, I appreciate where you're drawing from. I, I, I'm here for this stuff. All right. Um, do you do you want to tell the audience who Nuke is? As we know, but they may not know. Um. So Nuke was another yet another attempt by the U.S. government to make another super soldier. Um. And this one failed because they realized the only way he could keep his powers is if he had a steady supply of their Irsats super soldier serum. So basically, he was a drug addict that painted his face with the American flag and murdered people. Yeah. And uh, like you know. I say stuff like that, and then back of my head is there's still people online who say comics don't have a political agenda, and I'm just like, how, how more on the nose do you need to be? <laughs> um, but no, the, the other thing, um, which it was around this episode hit me, is how amazingly meta the choice of casting David Tennant was as Kilgrave. Uh, because this is... A few, a couple of years after his Doctor Who um, thing, and mm-hmm. there's a, a pretty common arc. Like if you were, uh, for at least in the modern series, um, you were cast on it, and then the year or two, you're probably cast in some kind of genre television show. After that, uh, Eccleston was on Heroes. Um, this was David T- Tennant was on here, um, and then uh, Matt Smith was on The Crown. So I mean, that's that's a pretty common arc, and this was kind of Tennant's big post Doctor Who role. Wait, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt your your, your great thing. Mm-hmm. I want to point out the three shows that you just said and put on the same level as all of them together. Yes, they're, heroes. They're yes, <laughs> uh, Jessica, Jessica Jones. Jones and the Crown. The Crown. 
Like it, it, it is genre television. It is histor- It is historical fiction. All right, sorry. Go ahead. I just had to. <laughs> I love the crown. The crown's great. Oh, I do no. too. One of those three, I don't like. <laughs> right. Um. Well, I, I didn't say Eccleston's post Doctor Who career was great. It just then happened. Is uh, Deathstroke pre or post Doctor Who? All right. Sorry. I think it was because he was in GI Joe. G. Oh God, you're right. Uh, you're right. No, you're right. The GI Joe movie was after Doctor Who. Um, he played Destro. Yeah. Wow, I forgot about that. Probably for good reason. Anyway, no. Um, but what's interesting about this? What hit me the first time I watched it around this episode is that is is that Tenet has a wide range, and it's pretty common for actors when they have a breakout role to be pigeonholed, right? Um, a good example is um, looking at um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch post Sherlock. A lot of his roles post Sherlock are very um, intellectual asshole, but prior to that, he had just really good, strong roles. Same with with David Tennant. And so initially, I was like, oh, okay, they just hired someone to be kind of Doctor Who. But then I realized, no, he's playing this like the Doctor. Mm-hmm. He had a woman brought into his life, took her on adventures, convinced her that there was this magical world, and then got rid of her with, with, with no recourse. So I'm like, this is a weird meta-commentary on the Doctor-companion relationship. So some people, I am not one of them, uh, would have compared Tennant's run, later run, as him almost being the Valyard. So for people that we're about to do a little Doctor Who history. Uh, people that aren't Doctor Who fans, you may want to fast forward like a minute. So the Valyard turn is supposedly the last incarnation of the Doctor. And it right. is an evil version. Like all the good things he's done, were in, this is like the evil version of him running mm-hmm. around. It's supposedly the last regeneration that in the olden days would have been his 13th regeneration. Mm-hmm. And there's like the entire trial of the Time Lord where Colin Baker, the sixth Doctor, stands on trial. And you find out that the Valyard is a prosecutor and he wants all the doctor's lives. And mm-hmm. there are people that thought that David Tennant was going to equivalently be the Valyard right. sort of towards his last run. Because one of the things is as the Time Lord victorious, which means he considers himself the winner of the Time War for a short while mm-hmm. and starts acting very much as an antihero. The doctor at best is a hero, we'll say hero seven. Like yeah. he's, he's doing good things but he's not caring about the consequences for the good things he does. Like he may go somewhere, free a people from the land and then bugger off. But he doesn't necessarily destroy all the people that stop them. And that victory could be very much short term and rarely ever comes back. And the Valyard is the pinnacle of all of his evil and is like a master genius. Mm -hmm. And so Tenet, I think is equivalently channeling that into this. And you can tell by the, the acting choices, like the voice that he uses, it is almost the same as a doctor, just yep. a little, like a little gravelier. Yep. And it was nice to see. Um, uh, and it's, it's again, it's little things like um, the way he talks to Jessica. Um, yeah, uh, uh, he's, he's evoking not the, the actual words, but the kind of cadence and the voice of um when he tries to talk down a dictator or when he's trying to convince someone they need to make the right choice. Uh, it's just that the actual substance is very different. And again, like for several episodes, I was like, okay, they, they basically said, you know, this is the thing you're known for, do the thing you're known for. But I realized that I think there's some level of intentionality here because it, it's a way to cut. It's a shortcut, right? It's the Kilgrave doesn't have 
that much on screen time before this episode. It's really the, la- the back half of the season where we start to see him more and actually understand his character. But he's just a force. And by going, oh, I know who Doctor Who is, I know who Dave Tennant is, they shortcut a lot of that stuff. It's like, okay, I know what this- he's a talker. He's not going to be a fighter. Um, he's going to be very suave. He's going to be very sophisticated. Um, and also playing with Americans' relationship with the British and how we view the British. So having a British actor play this in a very American setting. There's a lot of interesting stuff. There's some of it's coincidental, some of it's anecdotal, but I do think there's some intentionality here. And and so I I continue to rave that I think he's one of those people that pitch perfect casting in so many ways. Nobody else could have played this character in quite the same way. And I don't think this season would be quite the same season without him in it. Agreed. Um, I also think part of it is a a nod towards the origin of the purple man himself, because the purple man, if I remember right, was either a Soviet or Russian spy. Oh, okay. And one of the things that they universally do for characters like that is they cash a British person to be that. Yeah, right. Right. Well, that, that was the, that was the other thing I was talking about. Interesting is like, um, again, later on this changes, but at, at this point, um, a lot of American media has British as code for villain. You know, look at Die Hard, right? Um, so it's like, okay, this is the only British voice I hear. You must be the bad guy. And then they sort of play with that. So again, it's a, it's another set of tropes. Or, or look at Maltese Falcon, you know? Um, uh, uh, one of the, the British character is, is, turns out he's an asshole. Um, so, I mean, there are these set of tropes that we're playing with, and then the show subverts them. Uh, so, I mean, I, it's done, it's done cleverly. And again, having Tenet there just adds an extra layer that may or may not be intentional, but it feels like someone thought of that. And another great part about this episode is when Jessica confronts Wendy in the subway and you can mm-hmm. tell that she doesn't want to do it and she's drunk and you get a chance to see that a lot of superheroes seem to be unable to be become drunk. Like Captain America's has like the super endurance that stops him from getting drunk for more than like a minute or two. Superman and the Flashes, they they can't get drunk. Right. And Jessica, who heals a little bit faster than people, can get drunk like a normal person. And so that isn't a twist on that. And then seeing her in, engage with that. And you up to this point, you've seen her drink heavily and still be fully functional. And I use the word fully a little loosely. Um, right. But here, so much has happened that she's completely gone over that edge again. And a lot mm-hmm. of that's due to like knowing that Kilgrave is out there and she just needs to get money to try to do what she's going to do. And watching her pause as a subway train is coming towards her, thinking that this would be an easy out before she jumps mm-hmm. out is it is reflective of people that have gone through so much trauma and trying to figure out the best course of action and what would, how they want to do things. And you get the sense that the reason that she jumped out wasn't for herself, but it was because hope is still out there and right. quite literally nail in the head, hope plank doing double, triple duty right there. Right. Right. Um, now, after all that praise, um, I do want to say I do feel like Marcus's recovery. Again, we missed a bunch of episodes here, but watching episode one seven back to back, you see how fast his addiction is just discarded. And um, we'll see in, in upcoming episode, just as a quick note, um, that he is part of a recovery group. So there is a, still a nod towards it. But even then, uh, the, the fact that he was turned into that by Kilgrave does a lot of heavy lifting to kind of just ignore the struggle of actual recovering from addiction. Um, and I feel like that is a disservice here because Marcus is a completely different character at this point. 
I, I'm with you that it's good. He becomes a better character as a result. And his, his character is expanded on in future seasons. But at this point in time, it's almost like, why did we even need to have the Black Addict at the start of the show then? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree, but I do understand the reason for having an addicted character there that's close to Jessica. Sure. He needs to parallel her journey. Well, by that part, but also from Kilgore's perspective, is that if he's been with Jessica so long, he knows that she would take in a character like him, which would let him have constant, almost 24-hour access to her as a character. Mm. Because that's why throughout the series, you see Marcus always in her apartment here and there, and she doesn't get mad. She gets a little upset and kicks him out, but that's it. Like, And he keeps coming back in. Right. And so that builds in the more information that Kilgrave has about her and what she's been doing, which then enables him to build these more elaborate traps for her to fall into. That's fair. Um, And I would be more angry about it if we didn't have Jessica to balance it, because otherwise, if you take Jessica out of the equation, it becomes the addiction as a trait of an evil person trope, which I don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, And once he becomes good, he's no longer addicted, Uh, (laughs) which is 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 a weirdly common trope of like, I have kicked this. Now I'm a good person. Um, but we have Jessica there to eleven that, so it, it's not as frustrating. Um, and as you pointed out, this is a show with a surprisingly deep supporting cast. Uh, and again, when you're watching episode seven, like we just was one line talking about the entire uh, Patsy and Simpson subplot, but that's yeah. a that's a whole subplot that's happening. It's just not affecting the core plot of this episode, but we're seeing bits of that happening. And then, of course, uh, the whole Hogarth subplot, divorce subplot, is ongoing. I mean, it's, it starts more or less from episode two or three. And so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on that Jessica's not necessarily in. But then all those threads start to come together at the end of the season, which is nice. Um, but there's easily a dozen characters that this show's trying to track. So I recognize not all of them are going to get a satisfying arc. Um, yeah. But it is something that bugged me and I wanted to point it out. Oh, no, I agree. It was really good. And since you've given me such an easy segue for I want to talk about it anyway, <laughs> I, 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 I uh, punched my mic for you, sir. Ooh. But so Hellcat and Nuke have formed a relationship. And originally, I'm using their superhero names because it's funny fine. for me. Nuke is a cop who Kilgrave sent to kill Patsy originally. And through the course of the actions, like the, he turns back to himself and you also get a little bit more of Patsy's journey of like the abusive mother that she had that wanted her to be like a child star who yep. took all of her money. And so it's become like an ongoing thing for her. And one of the things that this slowly starts to show you more and more of is that she's lived in Jessica's shadow as surprisingly as that sounds the whole time because Jessica has powers and she's tried to train to become like the best martial artist she can to be like the best person she can in so many different aspects of her life. And in later seasons, you will see that jealousy like come out to the top. But mm-hmm. for this, it's seeding it. And it was nice to to go back and pick up all the little points where it's like coming in. Because she's a helpful character, but she has an ulterior motive to what she's doing. And you get more of Patsy's dark story in later seasons because there's more time to go into it. Yeah. And also, um, a subplot we completely skipped over is uh, Jessica's relationship with Patsy's mother because – Patsy's mother mm-hmm. adopted Jessica, and that's something that is actually part of the reason why they have relationship to do is because Jessica is also Patsy's stepsister, effectively. Um, and uh, the 
emotional abuse that Jessica got both as adopted per, adopted person and also as a person with powers inside of that particular environment and also the stress of a, of a woman trying to basically monetize her daughter uh, led to some really interesting conflicts that don't address that don't connect with the plot. Jessica and Jessica and Patsy's mother's relationship don't connect to the plot directly, but it does give more context for Patsy's story, which then does take off. So there's a lot of grounds laying for future seasons. There's a lot of forward thinking that we didn't see necessarily in Daredevil. Daredevil was frankly, we don't know if we're getting more than one season. So it's going to be just one big long fight against the kingdom. Uh, this is the, okay, we're, this is doing well. We want a season two, so let's give Patsy some groundwork, Patsy. And we start to see Patsy grow, but you're right, that doesn't really kick in until later because this is still Jessica's story. But you're also seeing as a side benefit of that, that all of the hooks that someone that Kilgrave could use to get in. Mm -hmm. it, it's the Jessica did not have a good life. And so someone like Kilgrave coming along and saying, I can make your life better, why that would be attractive, why that would be appealing. Um, so it, it's... It's stuff that doesn't service the plot directly, but it does service the the characters. And so you start to see the show that's a, little, a lot more character-driven than Daredevil. Um, and I think it's ultimately to its benefit, but it does mean occasionally you have weird rough edges of like, why is this you know thing happening? It doesn't seem to be servicing this episode's plot because we're also moving towards, this is a streaming service. And I talked about in Daredevil, those were a little more surprised and self-contained. Now, just... One year later, we're seeing a show that's really trying to take maximum benefit of the Netflix stream model and say, we're going to put this here. It's going to be a throwaway line, but it'll just pay off in two episodes, five episodes a season, whatever, because we know you're going to binge this through. Mm -hmm. what was I? And for Nuke, at this point in time, you don't know that Nuke is, in fact, Nuke. You just think right. he's a cop, he's got some good surveillance skills, and both Simpson and Jessica have not gotten along for this entire time. She knows that something's off with the character right. and Patsy is in very much a, a sex oriented relationship with Simpson. And part mm -hmm. of it, this is highlighting her own sort of trauma and everything else is that it's part of it was like the danger of having Simpson be there is why she was initially started, but then it started branching into something else, I think for her character. Mm -hmm. And mm. I am, I am so irritated by the Simpson character. Like even when I first watched it, I did not like Simpson. Yep. And I didn't like him from like the start. I didn't like the fact that he was constantly there. And given that the superpowers and everything else in the show, the biggest give I had to give this entire show was that the one cop that Kilgrave control to go kill Patsy is in fact part of a secret government plan to make super soldiers. That right. was the hardest give for me throughout this entire series. Right. Yeah. Um, the one advantage I will say for it is that um, it's continuing to lay the groundwork for the fact that the Marvel Universe is riddled with secret conspiracies and a lot of them center around what happened in World War II. The downside of that is that we're looking at this almost 10 years later and the MCU is still doing that. And it's like this plot line was so heavily used in the beginning and they just never let it go. It, it's, it's still around in some form. And it's, it's like, it, it, so we look back at it. It's like, Oh God, it's another super serum subplot. 
But at the time, you have to think about it. It's like, it was the, oh, this is how it connects. It's like, okay, so this actually connects to the first, you know, the, the first Avenger movie. And so it feels like it's all, you needed that kind of heavier hand to make it feel like it was all of a piece. It's only later that we look back and go, okay, but seriously, why is this guy in Hell's Kitchen or wherever tied to this secret government program? How many secret government programs are there? Because is this an offshoot of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Is this an offshoot of Hydra? Is this yet another thing? You know, yeah. and so it's, it's, it, it, it does not age well, certainly. Okay. Uh, I'm going to move on to my last bits about the police stations. Is there anything else you want to cover before that? Nope. Go ahead. And when we go to the police station, Jessica brings the, the head of Ruben and drops it on Detective Clemens' desk. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to The Wire, Detective Clemens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Clemens has been like the detective that's sort of been reoccurring throughout the show that's had brief encounters with Jessica. And she thinks that he is the one good cop that she can go to. Much how Batman would go to Jim Gordon, who is the mm-hmm. one good cop. Right. Or Sherlock would go to Lestrade. I could probably go on for like another five minutes. But, and so Simmons takes her in, questioning her, and they're having like this scene where he doesn't believe her because he knows there's something else that she won't tell him. Mm-hmm. And this is the worst plan I've ever seen <laughs> in a superhero show. Like, oh, yeah. I want to be this arrested, go to jail. So he'll come and mind control everyone, regardless of where he goes. They see it on camera. And but, to the show's credit, literally every other character tells Jessica, this is a dumb idea. <laughs> it, it's it's not like she would go to the Supermax that day, maybe even that week. So it's... <laughs> mm. But it also is a great demonstration of Kilgrave's power to have the entire police station there with their guns and everything else. Everyone in that room. And we as viewers, I think we've heard snippets of it, but so far it's primarily been like one person here, maybe two, three people there, but it's never been all at once. And to have her come out and to see that and then them all laugh and it just goes away and like it never happened, regardless of Ruben's body. And the only person, only people really grieving are Malcolm, who had to scrub Jessica's floors of all the blood and dispose the body. The the sister wife who knows he's missing and knows it has something to do with Jessica. And Jessica somewhat because it's another person that she's responsible for their death mm-hmm. in some sense that she feels like that is all power for viewing. Good to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it goes back to your point of while Jessica is a detective, she is very low on social intelligence and emotional intelligence. Um, her logical brain is going, this place won't keep me safe. I need to get into this place. I therefore need to commit a crime to go into this place. Not thinking through why someone would say, well, no, you're obviously not the person who did this because she has arranged the evidence and the, 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 the leads to point towards her and therefore go to prison and not counting someone like a cop going, but you wouldn't do that. That doesn't make sense. There, there's no motive here. She's a detective. She understands motive, but she has a, a, a weak spot in terms of seeing it in herself because she's thinking very logically. Um, and it shows the kind of PTSD disconnectedness you can occasionally get from people. Uh, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and then combined with the fact that you have a job where everyone lies and, you know, it's the go out, take lazy pictures turn them over to people who are then mad at you for showing them lazy pictures of things they asked for, you know, you get disconnected from that stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's a dumb plan, 
but you can almost see kind of how this character specifically would get to that. But again, this show does a great job of characters like Malcolm, who has a very strong emotional intelligence, going, no, that is a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, and it, it's it's almost, at this point, you're starting to see what I think eventually they become kind of almost a Holmesian, Watsonian relationship where he, he has the emotional connection. This is how you talk to people. And Jessica's like, but people are stupid and I want facts. <laughs> Uh, true. And so, <laughs> uh, so out of all the shows we've gone to, this was actually the hardest show for me to pull a quote from because there are so many quotes. And there's one that touched on almost exactly what you were saying about her excelling at finding what people do wrong and taking pictures and other people having a hard time believing that. Like that yeah. was a quote that almost made it in instead. Mm-hmm. But we're moving on to the last episode. Season one, episode nine, a.k.a. Sinbin. Walker races Simpson to the hospital. In the previous episode, Simpson goes into the house with like some of his squad that he called from his army days or super soldiers, and the house explodes. Right. Um, because Kilgrave sets traps. Boom. Right. Um, to the hospital where he insists on seeing Dr. Kozlov from his days in the army. Kozlov gives him some pills and his injuries heal miraculously. Jones imprisons Kilgrave in a hermetically sealed room where she plans to torture him until he reveals his abilities on camera. Hogarth warns her that this would forfeit their case in court, and the DA has offered a 20-year plea deal to Slotman if she pleads guilty. Jones convinces Slotman not to take the deal and devises a new plan, because the last one worked so well, for the footage of Kilgrave's experiments. From the footage of Kilgrave's experiments, Jones discovers the names of his parents, Luis and Albert Thompson, from a photograph, from photographs, realizing that his mother is a member of Malcolm's support group, Jones confronts her and Albert, convincing them to face her son. Joan also forces Clemens to act as a witness by sending him footage and then handcuffing him to a wall. Right. In the cell, Kilgrave is remorseful when confronted by his parents for attempting to kill them and to stop him from hurting anyone. And he makes... Ah, Sorry, I, I have notes for this, which is weird for me. And I have like multiple screens. I'm trying to find the right screen to read it on. And I hate notes, but this is how much I love you, the listeners, that I take notes <laughs> and I'm reading them from the page. Um, and so in the in the hermetically sealed room, he confronts his parents who apologize for hurting him and leaving him. And he apologizes for trying to kill them. And the mother tells him that the only way they can truly feel safe is if she kills him. She stabs him with scissors. And Kilgrave then pretty much orders them to kill themselves. And originally the hermetically sealed cage had an electric, an electric trap that Jessica push a button and it would stun and knock out Kilgrave, which mm-hmm. was her plan now, but it doesn't work. And that's how the episode. And in the end, Kilgrave escapes, but you discover when Jessica tries to stop him, that his powers may not work on her. Right. Anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the one point I want to add in before we go on the episode is that it is, unknown why the device stops working but i'm gonna go into that when we talk about it. okay uh going back on on things to be duty uh, uh the, the show mentions that sinbin is, is rugby slime uh did you actually look up what it means because i did i did not i didn't have okay that. um sinbin is basically the t- is the penalty box has the name for the penalty box in rugby which is interesting because first of all it's, it's just a cool sounding word for the episode of, of keeping a guy in a box, but also he's in the penalty box. You know, like the, 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 the analogy actually holds up because 
he is in the same bin, both in a literal interpretation of that sense and also in the rugby term. I mean, so like he he is been time out uh, and having to kind of think about things. So like I thought that was an interesting kind of clever bit because because and some of these titles are actually been really good about taking a line from the show, putting it in, but then there's depth that comes from it. It's like like episodes. Top Shelf Perverts was kind of a throwaway line from Hogarth, but it's actually tying into what a lot of the threads of the episode are about. Um, but overall, this is really just a lot of David Tennant chewing the scenery and doing an excellent job of it. Um, Which is one of the reasons I chose this episode. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, yes, okay, Nuke is injured, who fucking cares? This is about... The, the entire episode really is about watching David Tennant splash around the water and just act his ass off. And uh, it's, 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 it would be a bottle episode in a more traditional television production um, because almost all of the episode takes place on this one set. And it is surprising how compelling that is. Part of it is David Tennant, mm-hmm. but also part of it is this is the point where you more or less get a lot of the, that, that supporting cast trotted through. Hogarth comes in, uh, Trish comes in, Hope comes in, uh, Detective comes in, and they all have different conversations with Jessica, which are all variations on what in the living hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, with only Trish going, yeah, maybe we should just kill him. Uh, <laughs> but everyone else like, no, this is a bad idea. And it's... It's really interesting because this is very noir in the sense of there are no good solutions here. And everyone, everyone else is against Jessica on this. Nobody wants her to do this. No one thinks this is a good idea. And she has episode seven look back on going, you previously have had bad ideas. So even we as the audience are going, this is (laughs) really bad. And it does turn out to actually be a bad plan, but not for the reasons anyone anticipates. And... That is all spot on. And one of the reasons I really wanted this episode is that we're not going to do, I don't think we're doing spoilers for any of the season, but mm-hmm. in my opinion, this is almost like the finale of the entire show. After this, we get to a lot more comic action running around fights. Right. But like the this punch is, up happens, yeah. this is like the emotional end of everything. This is like what we built up to. And one of the reasons I love this show more than I like Daredevil is that it is a character piece. It's not about like who can beat who because really at the end of the day, Kilgrave, while he has a superly powerful power, is still just a dude. If you can snipe him from anywhere, take him out. It doesn't take a super punch. So like Daredevil could drop him in like two or three hits. Jessica could drop him in one if she really wanted to. And it comes back to the morality of the situation of why you're doing what you're doing. And where is that good line? Like from the evil he's committed and the people that he's already killed, Trish's stance, we should just kill him now, is a perfectly viable one mm-hmm. because you can't imprison him. He'll get out. He'll control the prison people there. Keeping him sealed up for life seems like just a, which is really prison, waiting for something to happen to, get, to free him. Hogarth's idea, if we just let him go and maybe he won't press charges, is a very lawyer aspect of it. Right. But why doesn't she kill him? with what he knows mm. like proof it will do what like at the end of the day getting the proof after all these people have been died have been killed what does that do who does that service right and that's one of the reasons why I, i'm with you I, I do think this works better in contrast to daredevil because uh 
Daredevil is, as I said before, it's basically an entire season of punching people, which I, I like. Don't get me wrong. I like a season of punching people. Yeah, I, I'm into that. I'm, I, I like superhero stuff. Um, but one thing this season does is that there are little bits and pieces, like we've talked about at the top, her superpowers. And then we haven't mentioned them since because all her superpowers really do throughout the season is get her into more trouble. Um, she breaks in the doors. She lifts cars and threatens people, which then turns around presses charges on her. Um, she uses it to intimidate a woman that she's trying to get papers from. And that woman actually makes things worse for the person that she's supposed to get papers signed from. Uh, so her powers do not help her. Um, and the few times where she does show them off, people hate her for having them. Uh, so here she is a woman who can press two to five tons and heal moderately rapidly. And she can't stop a guy who just talks really well. And this episode really shows how desperate she is. And uh, there are points where I, like, I feel like maybe her strength was, was downplayed a bit. And I, you know, um, I don't know if it could have been done better, especially with Luke Cage. I mean, how her strength is portrayed versus how it's portrayed in Luke Cage, I think, are very different. And there's nuances there. But you know, you would be deprived of things, the running gag of the fact that she just will break locks constantly. She doesn't. Every time she comes to the door, she ends up breaking the door handle and going in. And that becomes actually a running joke through the, sh the show. It's where people even comment on it. Um, and so she only thinks of her powers as a tool, whereas Luke Cage is part of his identity. Uh, and with, even with Daredevil is part of his identity. So the fact that she has these tools that make her different, that put her outside of society, and she still can't stop this guy. She has to something has to something in life has to make sense and so she keeps she's now obsessed with latching on to evidence if i can get evidence that will make the problem go away even though people later on this episode like detectives like even if we have the evidence what could we do you know Tr or sorry trish points it out it's like if you have the evidence what is that going to do how is that going to stop anything um Jessica can't hear that. She and, and this, this episode is a really good example of her showing her like she is now monomaniacal. I need to get him on camera doing this thing. I'll, everything else bends to this goal, and it's she, two people die as a result of that. Frankly, mm -hmm. and you brought up something that I forgot to mention in the opening intro about Jessica when Kilgrave in the six one six version takes Jessica as pretty much his prisoner, putting her sort of like in a state of a living coma. Like the recurring theme for the comics is that she's in multiple comas. There's even like a joke, I think in the Avengers that Spider-Man makes about her being coma girl. But for that eight month period where Kilgore basically takes her and puts her in a living coma that he controls what she does, no one reported her missing. The Avengers didn't, her adopted parents didn't. And when she comes back, that is a breaking point where she decides, I no longer want to be a superhero. I want nothing with your anything. And that's when she goes hardcore into like the drinking and being the PI and her powers have less of a focus for her, which right. goes back to them being a tool that you touched on. So I want to bring it up. And in the 616, one of the big things is when heroes train constantly and everything else, their power seems to increase and magnify. Like Luke Cage, when he starts, is at a very lower strength point, but he gets infinitely stronger from all the training. She-Hulk does the same thing. Like mm -hmm. the She-Hulk originally, 
this is my comic knowledge now, uh, can lift around like 50 tons when she starts, but she's constantly working out and training where she becomes a hundred tons and then can like rival Bruce, her cousin, mm-hmm. the incredible Hulk for people that don't know who Bruce is in that analogy. And so like Jessica doesn't do that. So like her flight, I think gets worse because she was never a great flyer, but then she stopped really practicing and it went mm-hmm. down. I think like the energy beams equivalent that she had goes down. Mm-hmm. And she, her strength, even though I think originally up here, it's that's why it's at the two to five tons. I think originally it might have been like around 10 ish. Mm-hmm. And so it's that lack of constant use for them because she's disassociated with that part of her identity. And it's now just something that she uses little bits to get for the detective pieces. Right. Yeah. And so that is also why it was interesting to see in this how when she goes in and she's just sort of slapping Kilgrave around. The, the restraint that she has, even though she, how badly she wants this thing. Mm-hmm. And Hogarth, who doesn't really know Jessica, and this is something that Kilgrave points out to Hogarth and other people, you don't know Jessica because as sick and twisted as he is, it's, he spent the most amount of time with her and he may have learned something about her or he may have like tried to input different things. Mm-hmm. And he uses that to his advantage on her and other people. Yeah. And one thing that this episode does that I love is um, – because this is also effectively um, Kilgrave's origin story. Uh, And Jessica kind of walks up to the fourth wall a couple times and is like, really, Kilgrave? I mean, you know, she she, she starts to kind of poke at the comic tropes a little bit but then backs off, which which I appreciate. It's like this is a little silly, but now we're going to put some reasons why. Uh, But throughout – the whole like first half, even two thirds of the episode is structured in a way to make you feel sorry for Kilgrave. And you kind of don't want to because Jessica's still there being like, no, seriously, he did this, he did this, he did this. And so you have that constant repetition of don't, don't get to like him, don't get to like him. And then eventually he, he pivots and, and reveals himself. But we as the audience start to almost fall under Kilgrave's spell, right? Um, there's no supernatural thing happening. He's, he's just telling a good story. He has structured things in his mind and he's, he's an emotional manipulator. So we are getting gaslit as the audience. And so eventually Jessica, although her plan is wrong and bad, she is Very right. Bad. Kilgrave is not redeemable. There is no path where Kilgrave gets out of this and becomes a good person. He cannot reenter society. Uh and even with the parents, and we, we get the parents' sob story, it's still all framed in that you did this horrible thing to your son. It's not until near the very end of the episode, it's like, we did it to save him. We did it because it's the only way. And, so, and then everything clicks into place. It's like all of this was done out of love, and then all the subsequent actions were done out of fear. And, them go, and then and Kilgrave saying things, I was just a child. And it's like, and seeing his mom still want to love him, and can't because he's a horrible person and they made this horrible person. The, the, the guilt and the fear, and it, it, it becomes almost overwhelming. But for a long time, you're, at least I was, when I was watching it, I was like, I fell in the, I know, I know the answer. I've seen this season before. And I was still sort of falling in the trap of like, well, maybe he can be he's like, what am I doing? No, it's Kilgrave. I know what, where this goes. Um, so it's really well done. It's structured in a way that he never says or does anything that is wrong everything lines up it's just that when you get to the end you realize you're looking at the wrong end of the line 
And then everything clicks into a different position. It's like, oh, no, this is actually all horrible. And Jessica has been seeing it correctly the whole time. But nobody else in the show, even the audience, isn't quite on Jessica's side during a good chunk of this episode, which, again, is just really, really masterful. And, again, my frustration is that Hope gets a kind of a short shrift a little bit in this. Uh, the detective is a prop at this point. But as I mentioned before, while it's frustrating for me, it, it is very much in the sense of it's not perfect. And this show is so close to perfect that I wanted to kind of just edge over that line. Um, it's a really good show and there are, there are flaws here. It's one of the rare Netflix shows where I felt like an extra episode actually would have benefited it, I think, in some ways. Whereas most everything else... Uh, uh, in this era, I felt like it was about one or two episodes too long. Um, this is one where it's like, like you said, the last episode, you could lop that off and replace it with some more character and stuff because Jessica breaking out of the cycle is the real victory here. Everything else is just denouement. Yeah. So uh, the, one of the things I wanted to end on and yep. the, the other reason uh, so there are multiple reasons I think that each of us choose specific episodes mm-hmm. and the strongest reason for me, other than the amazingness of this episode that I chose it is I wanted to highlight Kilgrave and what Kilgrave mm-hmm. means. Kilgrave is the epitome of white privilege mm-hmm. and male white privilege is that because you have yeah. some, a white character going through getting whatever they want and when they don't want it, they throw a temper tantrum and yep. society forgives them. And, to come to follow up on your point is that one of the reasons it is so convincing and it works so well in this episode where people fall in their spell it's it besides David Tennant's amazing acting, how the yes. other acting of the cast and crew is that society has this thing where they're inherently more forgiving of white people than they are of other marginalized and diverse people mm-hmm. and more so with white males. You can mm-hmm. see it in politics. You can see it politically. You can see it everywhere throughout the world. It's, I said, we're going to get a little political here and there. And this is like my statement point for this. And Mm -hmm. that shows in this entire episode throughout, like you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, every chance that you get, well, maybe you could turn it around. Well, maybe this and that. And that goes back to that ingrained white privilege that people have created in society. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree. And it's, you can recognize it and still fall under its spell which I think mm-hmm. is terrifying, but this shows a really good job of leveraging that. And even when you have someone who is Jessica in this episode telling you the truth, yep. like another white character to show you how more powerful and prevalent it is it just from the sexism aspect of it is this woman who's gone through all this torture and is telling you, this is what is happening and you refuse to listen, even though you see it happening right before your eyes. Yep. And if I remember correctly, this is like a year or two before the Me Too movement. So, I mean, this was not even like necessarily topical at the time. But again, this is a victim of gaslighting and heavily implied, occasionally stated sexual assault. Um, and the, it, 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 it's, it's a rape metaphor. The whole season is a rape metaphor. Um, and it does a fantastic job of that because here's a woman saying, I was assaulted, I was abused, and no one believes me. Yes, superhero nonsense is the reason why, but the story is still rings true. And it's one of the reasons that I love like the title of our show, John Lewis, is because 
there are so many different genres that tell so many different stories and the mm-hmm. genre is just a vehicle for those stories. Oh, absolutely. It's, and, it's, it's a women dressing. And that's what this show is. And that is why it's like an amazing show. I, yes, I genreless is an amazing show. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> I've got quibbles with Jessica Jones. Uh, uh, also for my 616 fans, uh, a.k.a. Jewel, a.k.a. Nitrous, a.k.a. Power Woman, or she still likes to be called Jessica Jones. Wow. I didn't know about the Power Woman one. It's used very briefly. Fair enough. Because Power Girl, DC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Power Man, yeah. DC. It's Marvel. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I could go back and say it is the greatest villain of all. IP law. <laughs> Boom! I'm out! Thank you for listening to the show. It's now over. We're done. <laughs> There'll be no more episodes after this. Do you have any closing thoughts on AKA Jessica Jones? Um, uh, Obviously, the only real closing thought I have is this is one of those shows where I, I agree with you. Um, it's, it's after we're watching the other seasons. I will also say none of the other seasons match up to the sheer execution of season one. Um, seasons two and three are really about spooling out the consequences of season one, and they do that well. It's executed very competently. It is a there's a lot of very solid television, but a lot of the frustration with Jessica Jones season one is that it set the bar. Daredevil set a certain bar. Jessica Jones raised that bar. Luke Cage sets a different bar, but every season after Jessica Jones and arguably Luke Cage is diminishing returns. Um, and Iron and, Fist boops to bed. Well, yeah, I, Iron Iron Fist was was just not good, and and we're not gonna talk about that. But can, um, can we just go ahead and tell folks that we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna cover Iron Fist? No, no, I I don't want to cover cultural appropriation. Um, yep, but uh, it, it it just comes down to. There's a lot of, of showing what Marvel television could look like. These these Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, all season ones of these shows really show what you can do. And they do it so well that they end up shooting themselves in the foot because they it's hard to repeat repeat that act. Like every season of Daredevil after this has a hallway fight. You know, because the hallway fight was so iconic and it's just like, okay, it's the hallway fight. It's now become a trope, right? It's like, oh, it's the hallway fight now. There was a hallway fight in She-Hulk. She-Hulk. Um, so, I mean, like, it's now a thing that Daredevil does and it's like, okay, but you can't recapture that lightning. Jessica Jones, same way. This is so, it, it's it's just good television. Even if you're not a superhero fan, this is just a good solid season of TV. Um, and I would give this to anybody who's even not a superhero fan because frankly, the superheroics are almost secondary to it. All I need to know is there's a guy who can possess people magically. It's basically it. Jessica's, like I said, strength hardly comes into gameplay. Um, Luke Cage's stuff is only just set up for his own show. You can really just ignore all of that and just have a really good solid character drama. And so it's almost, I'm almost angry at it because, <laughs> it, you know, it's like, it, it's so good. And it's like, cool. Nothing can not live up to this. So we should just stop. And they don't because they shouldn't. <laughs> And it, 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 it just withers away. So that's why I'm glad you said we're going to focus on season ones for these because, frankly, uh, with the exception of, of seeing Agent Carter a little bit in season two, a lot of these shows just really pivot badly after season one because they don't know how to recapture that. Yeah. And it's – no, no. You know what? I'm good. Like <laughs> That's all I got. I, I, I enjoy the show. 
Season one is by far the best. I think season two dips and season three gets a little bit better, but nothing encapsulates this. The comics, I think, have a similar similar problem mm-hmm. because the initial run with the Purple Man being like almost Jessica's perfect villain for this hasn't been able to recapture that either. Yep. That's why she's kind of been relegated to just being Luke's wife when she's an incredibly more diverse character than that. Yep, agreed. All right, do you want to tell the folks what we're doing next week? Uh, yeah, so we've you can done. Tell them that we lied in that we're doing Iron Fist. It's okay. Oh God, no, we're not doing Iron Fist. I mean, you can do Iron Fist. I'm not doing Iron Fist. I'd burn in the fiery pits of hell first. Um, uh, no, so so we're talking about uh, uh, Luke Cage a lot. Obviously, Luke Cage is the one's going to be the next kind of logical thing to go into. Um, so we're uh, watch uh, episode one, uh, Moment of Truth. Episode four, Step into the Arena, and episode seven, Manifest. Um, and just as a note, um, this is the first Netflix show that has very strong continuity with the previous Netflix shows. Uh, so if you're coming in just on Luke Cage, you probably should at least look up a little bit of what happened to Jessica Jones and Daredevil because it is building off of that more, much more explicitly than the previous shows have. All right. If folks want to find you online, where can they find you? Uh, until Elon Musk turns into a wasteland, I'm on Twitter as Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com, or more likely, you can find me on the Parker Hugh Discord. And if folks are looking for me, much like Eddie, you can find me on Twitter until it blows up. Uh, if you have an alternative to Twitter, please uh, tweet at us. Let us know what that is. <laughs> Otherwise, you can find me at Darker underscore Hugh, where I may restart my blog if Twitter gets much worse. Or you can find me in the discords where I am frequently talking to myself sometimes about the game I'm trying to run. And then I respond with comments about the game I'm running. (laughs) So yeah, we'll catch you next week with Luke Cage. Peace.